This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Unimagined Gifts, and the author is Charlie Heavenrich. And Charlie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Charlie. Good morning, Steve. Well, you're going to take us on quite a journey, a journey that most have never taken. You're going to do it through the eyes and feelings of those who have gone on this incredible journey with you down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And we'll get into all the excitement and the lessons learned in just a moment. But I wanted to read just a couple of things you've written just to give a little bit more about your book, Unimagined Gifts. You say, it is the story of ordinary people who came to the Grand Canyon for a vacation and came away with so much more. Their compelling tales demonstrate that all who travel through the Grand Canyon will come out on the other side having learned more about themselves, their capabilities, than they could have imagined. And thus, the title, Unimagined Gifts, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, tell us about yourself, Charlie. You've had many, many years on the Colorado. I have. And my first uh, my first trip was in May of 1978, and I remember it well because it was like a homecoming for me. Literally, the moment the raft hit the current and moved downstream, I had goosebumps and I had tears in my eyes and a very clear sensation of non-physical arms wrapping around me as if to say, welcome home, brother. Welcome mm-hmm. home. This and that was my introduction. And uh, the deeper I got into the canyon on that trip, the deeper the canyon got into me. And so at the time, I actually was half owner of a design-build general construction company back in Michigan. And something about the canyon caused me to make a commitment to do whatever it takes to keep coming back. Uh, At the time, I wasn't thinking I was going to be a paid guide. I just was interested in coming back and being an unpaid trainee, rowing a baggage boat in the Grand Canyon. And you did that for how many years as an unpaid trainee? I did about 10 trips over the next six years mm-hmm. and um, and then became um, a paid guide because things opened up a little bit more in 1983-84. And from then on um, until the 90s, I was pretty much part-time because, you know, I have an MBA in international finance. We don't row boats in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> um, but... It just kept infusing more and more inspiration for me, and I loved how I saw people's lives being affected and people changing as a result of their time in the Grand Canyon. And so over time, it was no choice. Well, this book, Unimagined Gifts, you take us on this Grand Canyon adventure through the eyes of your former passengers. So you've picked out, you've selected a few to give us their story because that's, that's what this is really all about, isn't it? I mean, the, the Grand Canyon and the Colorado are absolutely breathtaking, I'm sure, but it's about the people and what it does to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And the thing about being in a place like the Grand Canyon, like many of our natural environments, is that people uh, come off of what they know in their normal life. And in the next couple of days of uh, being down on the river, they start to differentiate, not necessarily consciously, the difference between what's natural and what's become normal in their lives. And as a result of that, um, people start becoming more aware of what they may prefer. And it can be a life-changing experience as a result of that. Compelling stories of what can happen when one travels to the edge and learns how to go beyond it. Yeah. That's the river. That is the river and that is the canyon. Because it's not just on the river. It can be, you know, in the hikes that we do as well. Because the canyon pretty much looks the same, but the river, as you say, is always changing. Yep. As they said in Siddhartha, it's always the same and it's always different. You can't ever step into the same river twice. What kind of insights do you want people to learn, to realize from reading your book? I think first and foremost, uh, I am deeply moved by the depth of courage and ability that people have, and they often don't realize it until they come up to some edge and choose to go beyond it. So um, I, that inspires me, and I want people to know that they can do so much more than maybe they believe they can. And these stories uh, are part of that uh, intention within the book. It's what do you do and how do you go beyond that edge when you want to? You call yourself an expert on change management. Yep. Well, change is part of the natural order of things in the universe, and humans are the only part of the natural world that tends to resist change. So one of my programs is titled Taking Charge in the Rapids of Change, and you get insight into that a little bit in the book. And the idea is, you know, what is it that causes us to tend to resist change and what needs to be present? to help us overcome that resistance. And I use the rapids as a metaphor to help people understand and appreciate why there's a tendency to resist change. And uh, there's some significant information that uh, I'd love people to have to help them deal with change because as you look around, change is accelerating and it's not always um, <clears throat> what we prefer, but sometimes we have no choice and no choice is a choice. So let's deal effectively with change Let's uh, deal with it in a, in a way that allows us to go where we want to go as opposed to being manipulated uh, to go someplace that we don't want to go. Give us an overview, first of all. We think of the Colorado, the Grand Canyon. It must be a long journey. Well, you know, our, our trips are 13 to 16 days long. People can do six or seven days and hike out of the canyon or eight or nine days and hike in. But the interesting thing about being on a raft trip in the Colorado in the Grand Canyon is that the, the longer you're down there, the shorter it feels because this is a very compelling place that tells you to be here now. And so time becomes less relevant. We have people bury their watches because we're on sun time and there is so much to see and do right in the moment when you're down there that time becomes less significant and we don't pay attention to it. So when people uh, who do the upper part of the canyon and hike out, uh, they get to that place and they don't want to leave, not because they don't <laughs> want to do the hike, it's because right. they've been so captured by the canyon itself. 226 miles the whole trip, but you can right. break it down into shorter 
shorter uh, days and obviously shorter miles. Now, how many do you have in your raft with you, Charlie? My raft is an oar boat. It's 18 feet, and I have usually four passengers. We also have uh, one paddle boat on our trips, and that can take six paddlers, and that's that's normal. And so you spend how long during the day? How many hours do you spend before you camp or however you take care of yourself for the uh, evening? It, you know, the, the real intention that we have on these trips is to get people off the river and into the side canyons because they're all so diverse. And so we rarely spend more than two or three hours at a time on the river. Some days we might go six miles you know, which would take a little over an hour. Some days we might go 30 miles, which could take, you know, five or six hours. But we always break it up with hikes, with lunch. As I said, it's such a compelling place that time becomes less relevant. Now we meet some very special people. Obviously, you've selected them very carefully to give us some kind of message. Uh, We have a nearsighted boy who you say is disoriented without his glasses. So why did you choose this young man? Uh, He's a great example of what happens with a little bit of support and encouragement. He came with his father and his his older brother, and for some reason his father wouldn't let him bring his glasses. And uh, he was kind of an awkward 12-year-old who still had his baby fat and clearly hadn't been encouraged too much in his life and so he didn't have you couldn't tell what he was feeling there was no effect on his face and um with with the support and encouragement of the guides he became a superstar but it it took that support it took him having somebody believe in him and help him Mm. uh do something in this case it was being able to get into one of the inflatable kayaks because before you can get in one of those you have to do a self-rescue and the self-rescue involves getting in the kayak, turning it over, getting it back upside, right side up, and then getting back in it yourself. And he was unable to do that at first. So there's that. There's part of that story where he just, once he realized he could do that and he did it, he just came alive. So the river becomes a laboratory of life. It is indeed. Going with the flow is more than a cliche when you're <laughs> down there. Yes, you can't do anything but probably uh, without a whole lot of work if you're trying to go upstream. Now, yeah. you have a middle-aged woman on her first vacation. Yeah, that was Jane. And uh, when I met Jane at Lee's Ferry where we started our trip, she was clearly um, out of her element and a little bit out of sorts because she had realized that she had not asked some questions. She spent most of her adult life taking care of her mother who had passed away the year before. And this was her first, literally, first vacation as an adult. And I can tell you, because she got in my raft that first day, that she was convinced that mayhem was right around the next bend. (laughs) Uh, Basically because she'd seen both Deliverance and a River Wild, and that's what she was expecting. And uh, just like uh, Daniel, um, she got two things. She got information that she didn't have before that helped her see that the rafts were buoyant and the guides were competent and that helped give her a little more encouragement that maybe she wasn't going to die and then she got some specific support to help her go where she never imagined possible 
And as a result of that, she was a whole different woman by the end of the trip. So people learn to be a team. Yep. You know, it's really interesting on those trips because you get people who come together from a variety of backgrounds from all over the world, people who may not spend time with others on that trip out in the out in the world, but down in the canyon, we're all human beings. The canyon kind of strips us of our pretenses. You know, down there, you're. it doesn't matter what mask you wear in the world, what role you play. Down in the Grand Canyon, you're a human being. And so you you watch a tribe being built almost effortlessly early on in the trip. And then uh, it's really wonderful to see people make friends that they may not have uh, friended, you know, out in the world. Now, you have people from all over the world that come to uh, the canyon, to the river that you take care of as the guide. Uh, you've focused on an English couple, and you say, out of their element. Very much so. And, they, you know, this was a middle-aged couple who uh, were not water people. They were not hot weather people. They came in July. They had what I would call a uh, meaningful but challenging experience, and as a result of that trip, both of them, within two weeks, um, went back to England, and both of them submitted their letters of resignation, and he was the managing director of four companies at the time, so Canyon had a really significant impact on them. Hmm. And finally, an Israeli lawyer. Oh, yeah. Self-discovery, as you put it. Yeah. Yeah, this was a woman who... um, Somewhat mysterious, very creative. She actually would have preferred to have been a photographer, I think. And she and I became really good friends. Um, if she had not been married, I would have, you know, been interested in more than just a friendship with her. Beautiful woman. And, um, yeah, her experience was, was, um, very life changing, I believe, for her in part because of a couple of incidents that happened that were not at the moment uh, pleasant incidents for her. So these people, these, uh, as you say, from all walks of life, from all different professions, suddenly they're on the river and they're just humans now, and it doesn't matter what they've done before. And you say you'll be inspired by their attempts to break through self imposed limitations. That's what we do to ourselves. We really do self impose, don't we? Yeah. Well, I tell people there's good news and then there's other news. <laughs> the, uh, the good news, the other news is we, we all have limitations. The good news is they're all self imposed. And I really <laughs> see that literally. It, you know, as a friend of mine has always said, the subconscious mind can't take a joke if you think you can't. You're probably right. And so it's that thinking that leads to self-imposed limitations, thinking too much. So you might come up to the edge and think about jumping 30 feet into the river, and then you start thinking about it. Right. And it's, oh, my God, look how far that is. And what if I do a belly flop? And what if I don't get out past the boat? So, you know, all that um, mind chatter that goes on. And so people get a chance to, to come up to those edges and... Uh, we tell them, look, you don't have to jump, and this is a metaphor. You never have to jump. But if you choose to jump, look where you want to go and jump. Don't think too much. Charlie Heavenrich, he is a life coach, speaker, photographer, 
He also has uh, another book, his first book, Dancing on the Edge, which is in its third printing, and now he has Unimagined Gifts. Charlie, tell us how to get your book. Uh, the best way to get my book is to go to my website, which is the Canyon Guy, that's G-U-I dot com. And uh, it, the book is actually officially debuting on October 13th with uh, my first book signing here in Boulder, Colorado. Well, we've really enjoyed having you with us on iUniverse Radio, Charlie. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Steve. I wish you an adventurous day in life. It's always an adventure on the radio. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Infocasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Infocasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sarah's Alice, and the author, Joe Wharton Heath. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read what you've written, just a few uh Statements about your book kind of set the stage. Okay. You say this, when Sarah runs away from her husband Joseph, her world explodes into one of liberation and fear. She has no friends, no family, and almost no money, but her spunk, ingenuity, and deep need for freedom might be enough. Though she takes on a new name and travels far away, she often reminds herself that she is safe from Joseph that he will not find her and exact his own special punishment. So yes. a very domineering husband, uh, 
even a pastor, right? Yes, yes, he's a preacher. Let's start out with a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into why you wrote this. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I don't want to say much. Um, I'm a Southern writer, and uh, and the book, Sarah's Alice, is a Southern novel. It's uh, it's set primarily in Auburn, Auburn, Alabama, and in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, I've lived in both of those cities. So for those people who live there, it will seem... That part will seem authentic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what was the motivation? Okay, what made uh, well, uh, as you probably know, there are there are many Baptists in the South, and one faction, the Southern Baptist Convention, declares. And I have written down here a direct quote from their official webpage: "Quote: A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband." Unquote. Uh, my story addresses how bad this tenant is. <laughs> that the Sarah's Alice, uh, I wrote it to to bring home, um, by way of fiction, how ridiculous and harmful that Southern Baptist Convention rule can be. That that was the impetus uh, when I began the the book. So you have uh, seen this? Sure. Anybody that lives in the South has seen this. Okay. All right, and so it's going on today. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, not a, perhaps it shouldn't be, of course. <laughs> right. But yes, it is. Okay, well, obviously, uh, like you just said, one of the major themes is religion in America and in the South and in the Southern Baptist Convention and this practice. Yes. So Sarah... Her husband, Joseph, the pastor, Sarah, basically lives in fear of her husband. Oh, that's how the story starts, yes. And she is doing everything she can to, at least at the beginning, it sounds like she has been waiting for this moment to escape. Uh, it's not clear that, that's, that she has been planning this. It's a bit impromptu. Okay. So not she hasn't really thought through all what's on the other side of escaping, I guess. No, no, not at all. In fact, it starts it starts at a truck stop. They're on the road, and uh, and Sarah's there eating lunch with her husband, the preacher husband, uh, and she is a wife who submits graciously to her husband. Frankly, she's afraid of him, and she's not much of a woman, actually, not much of a person. Uh, everything. Everything about her appearance, her actions, uh, represents uh, represent Joseph, not her. Uh, On the other hand, she's been her whole life. She's been buffeted by the opinions and rules of others. She's a she's a captive person at this point. Uh, Anyway, after lunch, a couple of things happen that are uh, inspiring or something. Uh, after lunch, her, her husband, uh, Joseph, he throws his wallet on the table. He tells Sarah what to pay for the sandwiches, as if she didn't know she'd seen the menu, uh, and how much tip exactly to leave, and it's a small one. Uh, and then he goes off to the, to the bathroom, okay? In the meantime, all along, she's been watching this guy at another table, and... Uh, when he gets up to leave, he throws a $20 bill on the table, and all he had was a sandwich and a cup of coffee. And then when he leaves, she's thinking, boy, he is so different from Joseph. 
and she sees the door, the door is ajar. And I think that's when she gets the idea, I'm going to go. I'm going to ask him, and that's what she does. She bolts. She goes outside. She asks this man who she doesn't even know his name, nor he hers. Oh, she doesn't know anything about him. She doesn't know anything about him. And she says, please take me with you, and he does. So things are that bad with her that she would just obviously right. just put her life in the hands of a stranger. That's right. And and as you say, she had no money and no friends. Her husband had made sure that she had uh, no friends of her own. And uh, she did have uh, about, uh, I calculated it once, about $90 in Joseph's wallet. She had that. He He had left the wallet with her. So she had a little bit of money, but not much. And uh, that's when her that's when her adventures began. When she's free of Joseph now, and uh, well, Sarah's Sarah's mind just loves this liberation, and she she starts to listen to her own ideas, her own uh, observations instead of listening to other people about what she should be thinking. Um, she grows, and she has a little later on. She has two new friends. The one is a uh, uh, actually, is my favorite character in the book, except maybe for Sarah. Uh, Cyrus Bailey, uh, who's a, a sort of a pseudo lawyer, and he teaches he teaches her street smarts, and uh, he, he's a great guy. I and think then, I think before we go on, we got to make sure that everybody understands. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, there, no, no. Go ahead. But uh, really understand that this isn't a situation where she just doesn't like the way he he handles her life. Uh, he's abusive. Oh yes. Uh, I mean, yes. right at the beginning, we learn that this guy is uh, a very he he's a sadist. I guess isn't he? he is. is that, yeah. Yes, uh, he, he's a sadist, and and, and, they, and he does things to her that where it, so nobody will ever see it. That's right. Yeah, he he. Uh, she has a flashback uh, right uh, not too long after she uh, catches this ride, and and then the reader learns just how horrible her husband is and why she's so afraid of him. Right. Exactly. So yes. so it's much more than just not being told what to do. Oh, this is true. Yes. Yeah, uh, this that's this a good, is a very really. Good point. Very, very bad situation, dangerous situation dangerous for her. Situation Who knows her. what this man is capable of? That's right. So go ahead. Tell us. You were talking about uh, uh, Cy. No, I just I had just introduced Cy and another another character that uh, these are later in the book. Uh, uh, this old man uh, Benjamin Gidry, he's he's uh, bedridden, and she likes to read to him from Tom Jones uh, on in the evening. But what she really loves uh, her conversations with Benjamin. He, he he gives her perspectives on life that she'd never been exposed to before, never been allowed. Uh, these these new thoughts, new thoughts are, are very addictive. The the book that that's that's Sarah. The book actually alternates between Sarah and Joseph. Uh, Joseph's point of view is is carried through the book uh, here and there. You know. Uh, yeah, you call him the X-rated preacher. I guess that's the best way to sum him up. <laughs> yes, he he's uh, <laughs> uh yes, he he has uh, a strong appetites. Yes, and as he slowly descends into hell. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> so this man is a character to he say is the a least. Real character. Well, uh, Joseph has a special gift. Uh if he wants to do let's say, 
something of dubious morality, all he has to do is think about it for a while before he, quote, realizes, unquote, that God wants him to, no, no, that God demands he do this. Demands. Demands. Yeah. He's genuinely confident uh, that uh, for everything that he does, God has ordered him to do it, including beginning a, a real affair. That's the X-rated part you were talking about, a real affair with a mistress. This affair started a year before Sarah ran away, and he was absolutely convinced that God had ordered him to do that. Um, if, if you have listened to many Southern preachers, you'll hear a bit of their wishful thinking being interpreted as God's orders. That's probably the most dangerous person that believes God is ordering him or her to do whatever. That's exact. That's exactly because right. Because they can rationalize anything then. He, uh, Joseph can rationalize anything. Right. This sounds like a movie. <laughs> who's who's, who's uh, Joseph? Who's Joseph? Who would, you, who would be casted? Who's the actor? Um, gee, it has to be someone that can really look dark when he wants to. <laughs> uh, who would that be? How about Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, you know, he would be perfect. And who yeah. would be and who would be Sarah? Uh, it has to be someone um someone innocent. I haven't got a clue on that one. Maybe Witherspoon. Ah. Okay. Or maybe she's too innocent. Well, no, well maybe. I don't know, but this this uh plot unfortunately is too real, correct? <laughs> Well, I wanted it to be real. I didn't want it to be just fanciful and people right. wouldn't uh, uh, learn from it. I so, want people to learn from so it. So she, yeah. al- she also, uh, along the way, meets Hammer. Oh, Hammer, yes. So this, she's, on a, she's a pseudo-detective. Uh, uh, she's learned this from uh, Cy, Cy Bailey. And Hammer is a boyfriend, and she's trying to uh, get into this, fraternity to learn about uh, some drug activity that's going on there. And Cy is to be her boyfriend, and it's kind of the first boyfriend she's ever had, not counting Joseph's courtship of her, which was very formal. Uh, Hammer's fun. He um, He's sort of a guy who, who never says much. <laughs> and the, the way she picked him out for the person to choose for the boyfriend was to look at the... Uh, fraternity pictures in the in the yearbook and pick out the the man least likely to have a girlfriend and it worked yeah hammer's great and of course then there's also carlton and then there's carlton now he's he's the son of the president he's the one in the drug activity and he's a real uh womanizer um uh light-hearted womanizer carlton's fun too but quite different from hammer yeah, she meets, she meets a number of the fraternity and on one of her cases, her most important case. All of this is, uh, she's far away from Joseph. She's still hiding from Joseph all this time, and she she thinks about Joseph and, and tries to talk herself into believing that she's done everything she needs in the way of uh, not ever giving anybody her Social Security number, all sorts of things that she's done that he can't possibly find her. And she changes her name to Alice. Why? Yes, she changes her name to Alice. Uh, Well, of course, that was so it make it more difficult for Joseph to find her. But the main purpose 
of her invention, Alice, was to change her persona. She made a conscious effort. This was very early in her uh, freedom to change from Sarah. The Sarah was sort of the trembling, pitiful excuse of a woman in the long brown dress uh, to with her hair in a bun. With her hair in a bun to Alice with her hair down, and she's a gutsy woman in the pink T-shirt and in jeans and jeans. Right. And and so she forces herself into this new persona because that's what she wants. She does not want to be trembling Sarah. So, th- so throughout the book, we're probably wondering any moment Joseph is going to catch up with her. Yes, and of course, uh, uh, the experienced reader knows that that is going to happen. But by the end of the book, uh, Joseph is an angry man and physically stronger, of course, than Sarah. Right. But Sarah is now in charge of her own life. Mm. Everything has changed. Well, I know right at the beginning where she now has escaped and now the truck drivers let her out and she's kind of in a some kind of a store or somewhere and then she hears the police sirens. I could just see yes. that scene. That would, She would just panic. Thinking, she panicked. Yeah, Joseph has sent the police after her already. That's right. Because uh-huh. she took his money. She stole his money. Yeah, his wallet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the fact that, you know, he n- now has no one to uh, control. Uh, that's right. Yes. yes. And, and no, no one to clean up the house and no one to cook his dinner. Right. Yeah. yeah. And do yeah. all the stuff that um, he wanted done no matter what. Uh, so exactly. He, he's a, a very evil man, and she's been, well, she has felt ugly and stupid, right? Well, she hasn't. She hasn't been herself. Right, but now, uh, now she's Alice. Yeah, she she didn't feel ugly so much as that with the clothes she looked tired and worn out. Uh, yeah, and but when she t- changes to Alice as a crutch, her life just seriously picks up we in, just, in every possible way. We've got time for one more comment. Okay. And I wanted to know, Joe, why your favorite poem is Invictus. Oh. <laughs> or, you know, and you often quote the last stanza to yourself. Yes. Uh, uh, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment my soul. I am the captain. I say, no, I am the captain. Anyway. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, if I weren't so nervous, I could have quoted it. <laughs> I'm sure you but could have. But the, the point, that the thing I like about that poem is that that's a person in control of their own life. They, they can't control everything that happens to them, but they are in control of how they react to it. They they are in charge of their own life. Right. I think that everyone should be in charge of their own life. The title of the book, Sarah's Alice, and the author is Joe Wharton Heath. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, it, it, uh, you can get it at iUniverse. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, Barnes & Noble is a number of uh, Internet places. Um, it's easy to get the book. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. 
How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go To My Radio Show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go To My Radio Show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go To My Radio Show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book Revelation of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And the author is Moshe Ben Yosef Halavi. Welcome, Moshe. We appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Good morning. First of all, I want to read a couple of things that you have written. Uh, you say Revelation of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is the first volume in a series on biblical revelations offering timely insights into the world and revealing the prophecies of Jacob. You will, yeah. you will explore in your book, you explore the creation from both scientific and biblical perspectives. And then you also look at and you examine the secrets of creation and the meaning of life, the location of the Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve, and much, much more. Moshe, tell us about your background. It's very scientific. Well, I, uh, I was born in Baghdad to, a, to the, the Jews of, of Babylonia. I was, was exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar 2,500 years ago. Uh, my parents and all the Jews of, of Baghdad moved to Israel in 1951. So I grew up in Israel and uh, went to, uh, of course, the Israeli army and then to the Technion in Israel. From there, I got married to an American Jewish woman and moved to the United States, where I went to uh, the University of Delaware, the University of uh, Pennsylvania, and, uh, and RPI, where I got my BSWE, MSWE, and MBA in those schools. And uh, uh, as far as scientific background concerned, I worked in the field of integrated circuits and electronics for 29 years, from basically being an engineer uh, all the way to a CEO of my own company that I established, 
and uh, vice president of engineering, VP of R&D, and collected on the way about 48 in that field. Well, let's start out with talking about uh, your motivation to do this. Uh, why did you feel you needed to publish your book? I had the, the background that I have from the, from the Jews of, of uh, Babylonia, which are the one who composed the, the Old Testament. That was one motivation. The other one is the scientific background that I acquired over, over the years and my interest in finding out the connection between the stories of the Bible and the science uh, of today. And it turns out to be, uh, once I sat down and, and, and examined it, this has been nagging me for, for the last 20, 30 years. But in the last 10 years, I really had the time to uh, dedicate to it and really, uh, so to speak, dig into it in depth. What I found was that the most advanced science that we have today, from Einstein theory to quantum physics and mechanics to the string theory that we have today, uh, and, and the description of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, are one and the same. They are one-to-one. -one. They are not opposite at all. They are absolutely complementary to each other. And Genesis is describing completely, in my opinion, the, the science of today, and vice versa. The science of today describes what, what Genesis is saying. So those two, those two chapters are extremely important, and indeed they are, you know, describing each other. And you studied these in the original language. Correct. I, I, uh, I, I speak Arabic. I speak uh, uh, and read, of course, uh, Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic. And I found out that the only version and the only way to really understand it is in the Hebrew text. And one must not only read the words as a story, but one needs to understand and look into it uh, as a letter by letter. Uh, for example, I'll just give you one example here. Uh, the first, one of the first sentences that, that uh, is described in, the, in Genesis is the words that in English says, let there be light. But in Hebrew, it is, it is yehi or. But the, the, those two are two, letter, two words. The first one is made from three letters, yud, he, yud. And the second word is or. Or is light. The first, letter, uh, first uh, word, however, is yud, he, yud, is indeed uh, made up from two, two words. One is yah. And the other one is Yud, meaning God, Yah, and then Ten. And it so happened that that sentence is telling us that the light of God has gone or expanded into the Ten dimension of the universe, which we know today from science. So science has been telling us in the last 15 years or so, that, or more, uh, but probably the last 20 years, more and more uh, intense in the last 15 that the universe has expanded into ten dimensions from its original uh, Big Bang. And the Bible, the first sentence, is telling us the same thing, one-to-one. -one. And well, this description is in the, in the book, your book that, I, that I have been written, that I have written. Your book is very comprehensive, and we obviously don't have the time to go into but a small segment of all your findings and all your beliefs uh, from your scientific 
scientific point of view, but let's start with the creation of something from nothingness. That's correct. Dave, this is, a, this, this is the basic concept, and that is where, the, where, where most, most people, I would say, uh, have never really understood that notion of nothingness. Nothingness is, is uh, to create something from nothing, uh, just to define nothing or nothingness is just pretty much impossible. What can be done is explained, this concept can be explained only in terms of analogy. And the explanation of it is in the book. But uh, it is, it, 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 it's, so, it's so simple. And because it's simple, uh, uh, we humans have, have had a hard time, in fact, understanding it. As I, as I think uh, we, we spoke before, I told you that, that the, the notion of nothingness or the one has been, uh, has been thought after by, by the Zen priests of uh, China, the yogis of India, the Essenes of Israel, that, that some of them, about 150 of them, lived in the village of Qumran, uh, the Christian saints, the showmen of, of um, uh, you know, uh, North America, and so forth. All of them, and in fact, all the way to today, people have been looking to connect with this concept called the one or the nothingness, and they do it through all kinds of, of means. Most of them thought that the, the torturing of the body and the exhaustion of the body or the deprivation of the body from all five senses will get them there. That included Buddha at the year 480 B.C. And it turns out to be that none of those methods is correct. Uh, the notion of nothingness is very, very simple. In my opinion, 10 years old can understand it. And because of its simplicity, people just could not... Being, people being complex beings could not really understand it. Uh, it, it, it. It's too simple, in fact. So I am describing that uh, in the book in absolute detail, which I can't really do it uh, in this interview because of the, of the short, short of time. Right. Um, I think once people understand that, everything else falls, falls from that. The creation, uh, the act of creation is understood clearly and easily, the expansion of the universe into ten dimensions understood also and explained in detail, and from there how the earth was made out of the, out of the numerous uh, galaxies and, 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 and uh, bodily heavens, and, and I'm going through the six days of creation, in other words, how planet earth was actually made. And, and explaining each day and, and, and what happened exactly. Now, it turns out to be that the science, as I said, and the description in Genesis is, again, I must emphasize, is absolutely one-to-one. And one can understand it, as I said, by reading the book. I can't elaborate on it in this, in this interview because it's just not enough time. One of the aspects of your book that you say is very controversial is that we were made by an advanced uh, beings we call angels. That's correct. Uh, it is my opinion, and it's, the the Bible is not hiding anything. In fact, it's right in front of our. Uh, it's in front of us, as it always has been. Uh, its description is is unbelievable because it really tells us point blank what happened. And we chose to ignore it or hide it or change it or whatever you want to call it. 
But the, um, the fact is very simple. It says basically that there is a creator who created the universe out of nothing through a spark that ignited this, this dimension, if you wish, of the universe of nothingness, which in a, in a most simplest way, uh, it is a, 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 a universe of absolute uniformity. That's why it is nothingness. Once that happened, uh, the creation as we know it, the expansion of the universe and all, all the galaxies and matters within it have come to be. Each state of existence is literally that. Ten dimensions, therefore, each one is different state of existence. Matter is one, one, one state, for example. Uh, atomic structure is another. Molecular structure, atomic structure, the, the, uh, the proton, the quarks, uh, the three forces, and so forth. All of them are different states of existence, and they exist in their own uh, realm, so to speak. Now, within that universe, I believe they were created or evolved, if you wish, beings, which I call advanced beings or beings of light, if you wish. We call those beings angels, but they are absolutely a being in this universe, and they are the one who made us. In other words, what they made is something from something, not something from nothing. So they have created, or, or let's say call it terraformed the earth, because it already existed. And they made us from a, I believe, a genetic code of some very similar to theirs, because the Bible says that we were made in their image, meaning like a picture. In other words, we look like them exactly. And in their character, which means, you know, there are many passages in the Bible that says God uh, is jealous, God is angry, God this and God that and so forth. Uh, God smells uh, the aroma, for example, of, of the sacrifice, etc. So we were made like them, exactly. I believe, therefore, that those are beings it exists in the universe on some, some level with, I believe, they have advanced technology, uh, enormous advanced, advanced technology, and it shows, it shows in the fact that they can terraform planets and they can, they can, convert, they can convert matter, uh, of course, into energy like we, we can, and energy back into matter, which is the, the, second, the, the, the other side of Einstein equation, E equal mc squared. The proof of that is in, uh, in uh, uh, Exodus, when basically the staff of Moses was converted from a carbon-made uh, staff, wood staff that he used to shepherd the, the sheep, uh, into a cobra snake. And in my opinion, that was done in about 150 milliseconds, where, where the, the uh, matter was converted to energy, was converted back into double helix, with all the systems of a snake, and then it was kicked into life. And it was done in 150 milliseconds, in my opinion. That requires technology at very, very advanced. So that's one. The other one is, of course, the creation, or the making, if you wish, of Eve as a clone from the ribs of Adam that was basically they put him to sleep because they were going to uh, perform an operation on him. And they took the bones. Within the bones, you have the bone marrow. Within the bone marrow, you have the stem cells, which can be programmed to 
grow a woman, a female woman. And they took her away, took this bone away, grew the meat, so to speak. In other words, they grew Eve into a full uh, figure, and then they brought it back to Adam. And he says, this time she is a bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh, and she will be the mother of all living things. In other words, implying there was another creation before her, and indeed it was. Well, we'd love to uh, talk for hours with you, Moshe. There's, there, you're very interesting. You obviously uh, have an incredible scientific background and a very uh, insightful religious background, but we only have a little bit of time left, so give us a closing thought. Well, I think that, that the, the creation, as I said, the creation and, and the, the book of, of Genesis and uh, Exodus, they are one, in my opinion, describes the creation of the universe and all that has been in it, uh, including including the the uh, uh, the planet Earth and the living uh, animals and, and and life and atoms and so forth. I believe that those beings have been guiding us throughout our history and they still are. So uh, I find that to be extremely interesting uh, uh, and and enlightening. Uh, to, in, in understanding the genesis and, and, and the science today. I came to, to conclude that they are both one and the same. That is the point. Well, Moshe, tell us how to get your book, Revelation of the Bible, the Book of Genesis. Well, uh, it's all over the Internet. Uh, all, all anybody wants to need to do is basically, uh, you know, enter the, uh, the title, Revelation of the Bible, the Book of Genesis, and it is sold by many, many outlets. Uh, iUniverse has it, and uh, Amazons and Diesels and uh, Borders uh, and, and many, many others. Barn and Noble, uh, many, many outlets that carry it, but one can, can order it directly from the, uh, from the Internet or from iUniverse. Well, thank you, Moshe. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.